Turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God, walking through the book of Leviticus. And as you turn there, uh, let me just kind of introduce this. The Bible communicates over and over in many different ways the importance of making distinctions. In the beginning, in Genesis, God creates the world and he makes distinctions. He separated the waters below from the waters above. He makes the animals and he makes them according to their kinds. They fit in categories. He distinguishes between his people and the world. One day, there will be a judgment and he will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. Our God is a God who makes distinctions. Our culture, on the other hand, blurs distinctions. We no longer know what marriage is. We no longer know what a man is or what a woman is. Our new president's choice for assistant secretary of health is a man who has boy parts but thinks he's a girl. And yet we're supposed to think that this is science. Our culture has lost the ability to make distinctions. In Leviticus 11 through 15, God makes distinctions for his people between what is holy and what is common, what is clean and what is unclean. And it's important for us to understand what's going on in this passage. You may have faced the argument, somebody, maybe if you get into a conversation with someone about something like homosexuality and they say, well, But didn't the same book that says homosexuality is wrong also say eating shellfish is wrong? How do you answer that? Well, the book of Leviticus is helping us with making distinctions in the right way. We should be drawn toward holiness, not excusing sin or apologizing for the Bible. And for us to do that, we need to learn why God makes the distinctions that he does and what he's teaching his people with that. So we're in the book of Leviticus, and if uh, you are reading through the Bible, Leviticus tends to be the book where everybody kind of falls off the wagon. It's difficult. It's hard to understand. How does this relate? And if you've been looking ahead and you kind of looked at what's in Leviticus chapter 11, you might be saying, why are we spending time on this? Well, there's a reason. And uh, I was intending to do Leviticus chapter 11 and 12 together, but as I got into it, there's just way too much here. And so I have to give you fair warning, this morning will be a long message. It's a long chapter, it's 47 verses, I'm going to do my best, but there's a lot of ground for us to cover, a lot of things to explain, and actually it has a lot of application to our lives today, even though the things, the specific ritual requirements that are there are not ritual requirements that we are under today, what God teaches in Leviticus is important for us. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means Leviticus chapter 11 is profitable for us this morning. Joel Beakey wrote in something that I read this week, he wrote, it insults the wisdom of God to say that his word contains teachings that we do best to avoid. We don't want to avoid parts of scripture. And by the way, when I say that, if you've been looking ahead even farther and you've gotten to Leviticus 12 and you're wondering, are we really going to cover that? Yes, we are. And you don't want to miss it. Ladies, I think you're going to see that what is in that chapter is actually designed by God to show the honor and the glory with which he's created women. So be ready for that next week. But this week, it's about animals. Leviticus is about how to live in the presence of God. And as we come to Leviticus chapter 11, we're going to be looking at the holy, the clean, and the unclean. Remember that this book takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai after the Exodus and the tabernacle has now been built and God is speaking from the tabernacle and giving instructions. In Leviticus 1 through 5, we saw instructions for sacrifices. Chapters 6 through 9, we saw instructions for the priests. Then last week in chapter 10, 
We saw the sin of Nadab and Abihu, who brought strange fire into the tabernacle, and the Lord consumed them with his fire. Then we looked forward, we saw that what's coming in Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement answers the questions that are raised by Leviticus 10. How can we come into God's presence? And now that there's dead bodies in the tabernacle, what do we do with that? How do we fix the problem that the tabernacle has been defiled by dead bodies? But in between there, we have specific instructions where God explains these personal laws of the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. So that's kind of what we are digging into as we start with Leviticus 11 today. And I want to give you just kind of a a brief overview of what those terms are getting at before we read the text. So there are things that are holy and there are things that are common. Everything in the universe is covered by those two categories, holy or common. Everything fits into one of those categories. Now, what is holy belongs to the Lord. Now, yes, everything belongs to the Lord, but what, what is holy belongs to him in a special way. It's set apart for his service. So, for instance, the censer, that kind of pan that you would take the coals from the fire and you would you know, move them from one place to another, you could have two censers that were identical. One of them is holy and one of them is common. Because the Holy One has been set apart or dedicated for use in serving God. So it's been consecrated for use in the tabernacle. They look identical, but one's holy and one's common. It's not talking about what the thing itself is in its essence. It's just talking about, is this everyday use or is it something that is specifically set apart for the service of God? Now, inside of the category of common, we have two other categories. And these categories are clean and unclean. Now, I have to explain this because clean is what's allowed into God's presence and unclean is not, but they aren't what you think. They're not talking about hygiene and they're not talking about right and wrong. They're not talking about what's moral These are ritual categories. There are things that are categorically unclean that are good things created by God. And there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that God has categorized them as clean or unclean. There are some things that move from one category to another. So you can have something that's clean but becomes unclean when it comes into contact with something else that's unclean. You can have something that's clean that becomes holy when it's set apart and dedicated for use in serving God. You can have something that's holy that becomes common. And so there's movement through the categories. But when you hear holy or common, when you hear clean or unclean, don't think right and wrong. Don't think morality. Don't think hygiene. It's not what these categories are about. If I had to describe what makes an animal clean or unclean, the best I can do is I would call it wholeness of life. That it somehow represents wholeness of life. And there's two big ideas in there. The first is this. Animals that, for instance, eat other dead animals usually are unclean because it has to do with wholeness of life. So an animal that's associated with death is typically unclean. It also has to do with the categories. So if you picture the different categories or kinds of creation that God has made, we'll use fish as an example. He's made fish. And and here's what a fish is like, but there are sea creatures that are a little bit different. They're not a typical fish. Well, the clean animals are the ones that line up with the category. They're whole in that they have all of the characteristics of that category. So a fish has fins and scales. And if you have a fish that doesn't have scales, 
like a catfish, it's unclean. There's nothing wrong with a catfish. But it's unclean because it doesn't have scales. So it doesn't match the category. That's about the best I can do to try to describe these. And I'll be honest, I dug all week trying to understand this. And the commentators are all over the place. And the one thing that they all agree on is we don't know for sure <laughs> why certain things are clean or unclean. At the, at the end of it, at the bottom line is God said so. And God's the one who defines the categories. And that's the way life is. God defines the categories. He defines what is approved and what's not. And so all of these things, all of these animals and the categories of clean and unclean and all of that is meant to be an illustration for God's people that things have to measure up to his standards as he's given it in order to come into his presence. That's kind of the basic idea. So let's dig into the text, and we're going to move quickly through it, and I'm just going to read it section by section and kind of make a comment or two on each one. Leviticus chapter 11, let's start at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the people of Israel, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Okay, so again, God sets the categories, and what you have here in this chapter is what forms the basis of for Jewish dietary law. Today we would call that kosher food, but in all honesty, what is today called kosher is a lot more restrictive than what God said. They've added a lot of specifics that God didn't say. Okay? Verse 3, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So animals that have a split hoof and chew the cud may be eaten if they've got both of those characteristics. But animals that don't have both are unclean. So picture the story, for instance, of the prodigal son. As the story is told, Jesus tells us to picture how bad it has gotten for this rebellious son because he's gone so far that he's living amongst Gentiles and he's living with the pigs and he's caring for the pigs, and he's even eating the same food as the pigs. So his association with the pigs, or with the Gentiles, is designed to show you how far he's gone. He's living in this kind of unclean place. You get the idea. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So water creatures with fins and scales are clean. So several of the disciples are fishermen. You know, that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, at one point, Jesus has them catch a fish, and he takes a coin out of the mouth of the fish. Fish are good. No problem with fish. But water creatures that don't have both characteristics are unclean. So you can picture sometimes in Scripture, enemies or enemy kings, like, for instance, Pharaoh in Egypt, is pictured like a sea monster. All right, verse 13. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Now today we read that list and we go, well, a bat isn't a bird. According to our, con our, our way of defining things, it's not. We have a different system of classification than God does. God lumps them in with birds. 
All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. So birds that eat dead animals are unclean. And it's implied then that other birds are clean. So for instance, pigeons and doves. Uh, pigeons are an acceptable sacrifice for people who are poor to bring to God. Elijah is fed by the ravens, which are unclean. And that's a picture of what happens a few verses later. He's going to be fed and cared for by a Gentile widow. So again, the animals are kind of like picturing God's people and other people. Right? So the raven is a picture of a Gentile. Flying insects that walk are unclean, but flying insects with jointed legs that hop are clean. You can eat those. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he's eating wild honey and locusts. Now, eating bugs... Doesn't sound appealing to us today, but for most cultures in most times, it's been a regular part of their diet, and God gives some bugs that are okay and some bugs that are not. Now, at this point, the chapter changes a little bit. We move from live animals to dead ones and what effect their carcass has when it comes into contact with something else. Verse 24, and by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, touches them when they're dead. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. So touching the carcass of a dead animal makes you unclean. And it requires purification. Touching a live animal is okay. Even a live, unclean animal, that's okay. You can't eat it, but you can touch it. You could have a pet dog or cat. You shouldn't do that anyway, but you can have a pet dog, and that's okay. You just can't eat it. And if it dies, you can't touch it. And if you have to touch it, or somehow you do touch it, you have to wash your clothes, and you're unclean until the evening. Now, why the evening? Well, in the Jewish world, evening is when the next day begins. So you're just unclean for the rest of the day. Again, don't think wrong. You didn't do anything wrong, nothing immoral, but it still requires purification. Verse 29. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand and the chameleon, these are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean, and all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Basic idea there is that the carcasses of these unclean things 
cause uncleanness when they come into contact with something. And so that requires purification. So if you have a dish and the dish has water in it and a dead lizard falls in it, the water's unclean and the dish is unclean. If a dead lizard falls into a river and you want to drink from the river, you're still okay. If you touch the lizard, you become unclean, but the water doesn't. Water that's connected to ground doesn't become unclean. I, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around it and understand all the logic of it. Uh, we'll move on. Verse 39. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So even the carcasses of clean animals caused uncleanness and required purification. Verse 41. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is Testable, it shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet, <clears throat> any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. So swarming things were unclean, and they defiled those who ate them. Now, in those last sections you can kind of see the spreading nature of uncleanness. And that becomes a picture for us of sin. Cleanness, we don't, we, we don't have the power to <clears throat> touch something and make it clean. Uncleanness spreads to us. But think about what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. It's the opposite. When Jesus touches something, it becomes clean. And we'll get to that in a few chapters. Verse 44, for I am the Lord your God. <clears throat> this is now the rationale, okay? This is the explanation behind this stuff. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So <clears throat> Israel's supposed to be holy, and their diet and their handling of these things is an illustration of how they're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be made distinct, separated from the rest of the peoples, because they have been marked out for service to God. They're supposed to be holy, because God is holy. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're to be consecrated to his service, kind of like priests. They were redeemed by him. They've been bought by him out of Egypt. So they belong to him. And so they're going to serve him. And then the last two verses, verses 46 and 47, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So Israel's diet involved making distinctions between holy and clean and unclean, and this distinction set them apart from the rest of the people in the world. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you kind of three concepts for us to think about when we try to say, well, what does that mean? What is God telling us and what does it have to do with us today? So there's three concepts. The first is being distinct. Being distinct. God's teaching his people that they're supposed to be like him, not like the people around him around them. If they don't obey, eventually they're going to face exile. They're going to have to leave the land. <clears throat> now we'll get there eventually, but Leviticus 20, we read this. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. <clears throat> so I'm putting you in the land and you need to obey my rules. And if you don't, the land's going to vomit you out. You're going to be exiled away from the land. 
And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. It's kind of like God is cleaning out the land. So the people that were there, he's removed. He's removing the uncleanness, and he's dedicating this space for his people, and he's putting them there, and they're supposed to maintain cleanness in that place where he's put them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. Why does God go through all of this setup and these rules? Because every time Israel had to make a distinction between a clean animal and an unclean animal. And every time they had to go through <clears throat> the process of becoming ritually clean again after they became unclean, it's a reminder to them that they are a distinct people, <clears throat> that God has separated them out from the nations. You shall not make yourselves detestable by bird, by, excuse me, by beast or by bird, or by anything which the, with which the ground calls, crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So the distinction of the animals was a picture of Israel's relationship to God and to the world. The only time that the Lord makes a, a speech specifically to Aaron, the high priest, is in the passage we looked at last week, Leviticus 10. And in there, he says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Part of the job of the priests was to make the distinction and to teach the people how to make the distinction. The reason I bring that up is this. When we understand this concept, it sheds a little bit of new light on how the Bible begins. In Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, you don't need to turn there, but just think about the story. It, Genesis should be read, eventually, as if you've already read Leviticus. So if you pick up your Bible and you start at the beginning, you read Genesis, you read Exodus, you read Leviticus, you go on through the Bible, you come back to Genesis, and now all the other stuff that you've read informs how you read Genesis. And if you read Genesis with Leviticus in mind, it changes it a little bit. Here's what I mean. The garden is like a tabernacle or temple. It's sacred space where God meets with his people and it's different from the wilderness outside the garden. Adam is presented to us as a priest. He's given the instruction to work and keep the garden. Those two verbs, work and keep, everywhere else in scripture, when they come together, are describing the job of a priest. To guard, the word work really means guard, and keep or maintain. Adam was supposed to guard the garden and maintain it. He's like a priest maintaining the sacred space and guarding it so that nothing unclean comes in. And just like the priest was supposed to take the words that God gave him and teach the people Adam was supposed to take the words that God gave him and teach Eve and his children and anyone that came beyond his children. He's commissioned to work or guard and keep. Just thinking about the priests again now. Numbers chapter 3 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. Set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation. The priests in their guarding function were guarding the sacred space 
but they're also guarding the congregation. They're guarding the people before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, so they guard the sacred space, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, their holy given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. You hear the guarding language. That's a big part of the job of the priests. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. What's an outsider? A Gentile? Someone who's unclean? Someone who's not supposed to be in that sacred space? So as the story goes on in the Pentateuch, you see all of a sudden there's sin taking place in the camp and Phineas, who's a priest, takes a spear and runs it through a couple of the Israelites because they've made the place unclean. And when he does that, the punishment of God stops. This is serious stuff. Guard the sacred space and guard the congregation. And if an outsider comes in, he should be put to death. Go back to Genesis. What was Adam's job? Guard and keep. What should Adam have done when the serpent showed up? The serpent, which is unclean, invades the sacred space. And Adam is right there with Eve, Scripture tells us. And what happens? The serpent says, Did God really say you can't touch, you can't eat any of the fruit on any of these trees? And Eve says, No. She says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Eve always gets accused of adding to God's words, and I'm sure I have said that before. But after reading Leviticus and thinking through this concept of clean and unclean, I think she's saying what her husband Adam, the priest, told her it's unclean. When you pick fruit off the tree, it's no longer living, it's dead. You're not supposed to touch that off this unclean tree in the midst of the garden. But we know that Adam and Eve do fall into sin because Adam doesn't do his job of guarding the garden. He doesn't kill the outsider who shows up. And it's all downhill from there. And what's the judgment, by the way? Exile. They're vomited out of the land, to put it in the language of Leviticus, right? They're vomited out of the garden. God sends them out because they did not follow his rules in that sacred space. Now, when we come to the New Testament, these unclean and clean things show up. Jesus, in Mark 7, declared all foods clean. No longer have to do this. Distinction of different kinds of food. You can eat shrimp. And you can eat pork. Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, though, is the key passage for us to understand as we think about this idea of being distinct. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. There's a man named Cornelius who's a Gentile, and God tells him, send for Peter. He has a message you need to hear. While Cornelius' servants are heading towards Peter, Peter has a vision. Pick it up with me in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. 
So Peter and Cornelius make contact, and as the conversation goes, jump down with me to verse 28. Peter realizes what God is teaching him, verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So the, the, the dietary laws helped Israel to understand how they were distinct from the nations, but now that's gone. The gospel goes to the nations, and Peter is used in the process, and he welcomes this. Jump down to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Jew or Gentile. Go down to verse 42. And he commands to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one, Jesus is the one, appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so here we see the fulfillment of all that this was pointing to. Now those restrictions are gone in that it's not the Jews anymore that are the focus of God's work, all people are the focus of God's work, and the gospel goes out to all. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be distinct, though. The rationale of being distinct still makes sense. God wanted his people to be distinct so that they wouldn't be drawn into sin by the nations. Fellowship over meals is really difficult when you have all of these dietary restrictions. If you invited someone Jewish over for dinner, it really complicates things to figure out the menu. And so the dietary restrictions had a natural function of not allowing table fellowship, not allowing that kind of influence. God doesn't want his people influenced in wrong ways by the world. That's still true today. Now we can sit down and eat with anyone but we still have to maintain God's standards of holiness. So, we don't give up on things like objective truth, biblical morality, or ethics. You can befriend your neighbor or your family member or your coworker who is gay but you can't do anything or say anything that would approve or give consent to their sin. Do you see how that works? You're still to be distinct. You're to be the people of God. It's not about diet, but it is still about holiness. It is still about God's standards. His dietary standards were an illustration of how his people were to be distinct from the world. What is it that makes us distinct? We accept God's standards. We accept his rules. The other two kind of ideas will be more brief. The second one is this, resetting equilibrium. Kind of an awkward, wordy way of saying this. But here's what I'm trying to say. There was sacred space, the tabernacle area. It has been said that Leviticus contained the world. What that means is the way that, that the tabernacle and the, the, the camp of the Israelites and the wilderness beyond, the way that all of that was set up was like a miniature version of the world. It was teaching something about how God's designed the world to work. And so, when you had the tabernacle, you have inside the tent two parts, the most holy place and the holy place. The most holy place is where God's presence was. That's, that's the center of holiness 
in the Israelite universe. And going out from there, it's decreasing intensity, so to speak. So only the high priest could go into the most holy place and only once a year and only in a very specific way. More priests could go into the holy place and more could go into the courtyard. People, the, the people could come into the courtyard even to offer sacrifices. And, and then there's the camp of Israel and then there's the wilderness beyond. So as you move out from the tabernacle, there's this spectrum of holiness. Let me give you a few examples. From the Holy of Holies to the wilderness, like I just described. Now, on the same kind of thinking, there's the idea of what's holy all the way out to what's unclean. So unclean things are to be dealt with, and sometimes even they're outside the camp. The camp is to be clean. Clean things can come into the courtyard, but only holy things can go into the holy place. There's the spectrum of life to death. At the very center of all of this is God who contains life in himself. He's the source of all life. Dead things belonged in the wilderness. There's a spectrum there. It's a picture of everything being the way it's supposed to be all the way out to things being in chaos, things being not the way they're supposed to be. It's a world of equilibrium. So when an Israelite came to worship, when they came to the tabernacle and they brought a sacrifice, they are resetting the equilibrium in their life. They've been unclean. Now they're clean. Now they're bringing a sacrifice. They're, as they come closer and closer to the presence of God, it's restoring the equilibrium. It's getting things back to the way it's supposed to be. And coming into the presence of God, you're coming into sacred space where everything is the way that God has said. It's the way it's supposed to be. Now, what happens when those boundaries are violated? Like in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire into the tabernacle. What happens? Our God is a consuming fire. And he destroys them. And now there's dead bodies in the tabernacle. And we have to fix this problem. And there's always going to be things like that that don't go the way they're supposed to be. The ultimate solution for the Israelites was the Day of Atonement. When all of the sins of all of the people were put on that scapegoat and one goat is killed, why blood in the tabernacle? Because the life is in the blood. And the other goat is sent where? The one bearing all of the sins, bearing all of the guilt, is sent out into the wilderness. It's restoring the equilibrium. It's putting things back the way they're supposed to be. But this had to happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over, year after year after year after year, until the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what puts an end to it. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what restores the universe to the way it's supposed to be. And we're in the process of that now. He's accomplished it. He's working it out. That's the victory, that's the thing that the Day of Atonement was pointing forward to. Now, what does that mean for you and me today? It means that when we come to worship, our focus, the central focus of what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We do what we do because God commands it. We sing and we read and we pray and we preach because we're doing what God has said. It all revolves around Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what the story of our world centers on. This is what it takes for us to come into God's presence. The way is opened by Jesus, and we need to have the reorientation that happens on Sunday morning when we gather to worship. This is the hour out of the week that God has designed to reset the equilibrium of your life. Because we gather as the people of God, distinct from the world, focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
that has accomplished our salvation. And our minds are renewed by God's word. And we sing and we praise and we worship him in response to what he's done. When we gather on Sunday, what we are doing here is ultimate. And all that we encounter in the week is reset when we come together. Last idea, imitating God. What has changed from the Old Testament to now because of Christ? Christ has fulfilled the law's demands. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest. He offered the perfect obedience. And so now there is no more sacrifice. There are no more priests. He was the sacrifice that was offered once for all. He came to fulfill the law, not to set it aside. What the law was saying is still true. All of the general requirements of the law continue, but not the rituals. God is holy, and we are to be his holy people. We are to be distinct. The catechism question we looked at this morning, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number four, commenting on this in his question-answer format, Thomas Vincent said this, what is the holiness of God? The holiness of God is his essential property whereby he is infinitely pure, loveth and delighteth in his own purity, now catch this, and in all resemblances of it which any of his creatures have. And is perfectly free from all impurity and hateth it wherever he seeth it. In other words, God delights in you when you reflect his holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. Finish with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn in your Bible there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember, this man who's writing this letter is the same one who saw the vision of the sheet that came down with all of the animals in it. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to start in verse 13. Take all that we've talked about this morning and let that inform how you hear these verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. What should you do then? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why did God make you distinct from the world? Why did he draw you to himself? Why did he redeem you with that precious blood? 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You belong to him. You were redeemed by the lamb. You serve him as a holy priesthood. So that means we live differently. We abstain from worldly passions. According to his standard, not ours. Proverbs 30 verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. What's our standard of holiness or of cleanness? It's God's word. Okay, you look around at the culture around you. Our culture has plenty of guilt to go around, but it's all misplaced guilt. So the solutions are misplaced solutions. The solutions our culture offers are things like social justice and environmental justice and things like that to assuage their guilt. It's misplaced guilt. No, we have to look at God's standards. God alone defines guilt and God alone removes guilt. And he's done that through the precious blood of his lamb. So we live differently. We abstain from worldly passions. We live like God. We are to be holy as he is holy. Lord, as we consider these words from Leviticus, they're words that in, in many ways are very distant from us. All the list of animals and clean and unclean. <clears throat> but please don't allow us, <clears throat> please don't allow us this morning to miss the point. You've called your people to be distinct. We live in a world that tempts us with its passions and desires. Help us to be holy as you are holy. To be a royal priesthood whose priority is to serve you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that allows us into your presence. And we pray it in his name. Amen.